Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Message from our sponsor, Vitsu. Marta's story. If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time, she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives. If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V-I-T-S-O-E.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with the journalist and author Maggie Ferguson. We spoke to Maggie about her work both past and present at the Royal Society of Literature, about her biographies of George Mackay Brown and Michael Morpurgo, and about her work as a journalist. It's a fascinating episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Maggie to Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, can we start with your work at the Royal Society of Literature, where you are the literary advisor? Um, for those who don't know, could you tell us a little bit about what the RSL does? Uh, you've described it as among the strangest and most beguiling organisations in London. Yes, I'm not sure it still would um, merit that description. I'm sure it's very beguiling, but it's no longer very strange. But when I first um, worked there in the early 1990s, um, it was in a large house in Bayswater, which had its own lecture hall, um, massive offices upstairs, and I was this sole employee. So I had a an office the size of a tennis court and uh, a library next to my office um, of all the fellows of the Royal Society of Literature's books. But um, nobody was allowed to use the library because... Uh, a fellow some years before I joined had taken to uh, turning up at the RSL in two pairs of trousers sewn together at the hems and uh, he would drop um, books down into his trousers and then walk off with them and then eventually it was discovered that these books were being stolen and um, the library was closed. Um, So it was like a kind of sleeping beauty room, these dusty old uh, books that nobody but me you know, looked at or touched. Um, We had John Mortimer was then our um, chairman um, and Roy Jenkins was our president and the fellowship of the RSL was quite elderly um, and rather sort of very sort of white and grand. Um, Anyway, it grew uh, and it changed and now um, the new president of the RSL is Bernadine Evaristo, just elected um, and, you know, full of ideas about how to uh, yank the RSL into the, well, first it has to come into the 20th century and then into the 21st. Um, 
so it's now it's now a sort of busy zinging organization not that has nothing to do with me but it's very well run by somebody called Molly Rosenberg um and her uh, very excellent team and I simply these days um edit their uh magazine yeah so that's my but this is like my connection with the RSL goes back 30 odd years so it's a long it's a long thing and following from from you alluding to its various changes what is the history of the organization and and how has it evolved over the years yes well it was founded by um george the fourth um in 1820 uh and in those days literature wasn't really so much to do with sort of novels and biographies and poetry it was to do with kind of antiquarian researches so the early fellows were were mainly antiquarians um and then slowly uh at the beginning of the 20th century it began to uh change you know literature began to be understood in the way we would understand it now and so there was a, a fellowship of sort of grand elected writers and a membership of people interested in literature and um they would run a program of uh events and some pretty amazing people kind of passed through the lecture hall of the RSL, uh, especially in my early days, actually, sort of Muriel Spark, Seamus Heaney, you know, they, 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 a lot of quite extraordinary um, writers kind of came into my life in in, in a way in those early days. So I, I, I was very, very uh, lucky in that. Um, but today they do far more, I mean, they don't just run programmes of events, they do you know, they've got a new scheme for mentoring um, black writers, matching them up with black writer mentors. Um, they're doing, you know, work to encourage reading in schools. They're encouraging the writing of poetry during lockdown, that kind of thing. So it's, it, it's now, it's a, it, it, it's a busy and kind of worthy organisation in a way that I, I think maybe it wasn't when I was the, in charge of it. But um, it's, it's growing very nicely. I believe you joined in the autumn of 1991 as the secretary, which you alluded to, and then you've been director as well. Could you talk us through the various roles uh, you've had there and what they've involved? Yeah, well, actually, um, being a sec- being the secretary and being the director were actually the same thing. It was just um, at a certain point, people began to think that the title secretary, which in an old-fashioned way is is actually quite grand, but, but that sort of younger people didn't recognise it as such. So secretary sounded like I was kind of administrative dog's body um and uh so they changed my name from secretary to director but um what was I in charge of I mean I was simply in charge of kind of running the things so running the meeting the council meetings as a sort of council of writers who um who run the RSL so I would be in charge of their meetings in charge of setting up the lecture programs and um you know, and everything down to doing the accounts and because it's, as I said in the beginning, it was only me on the staff. So I was doing literally everything. Um, And I mean, that meant in the early days when I was first there, we didn't even have a computer. So um, I was working on a manual typewriter. Uh, I don't really understand looking back how on earth that was um, possible. You know, every letter had to go out having been you know bashed out on a manual typewriter um we didn't even have a photocopying machine they had they had just before i arrived bought a um an answering machine for the phone but that was thought to be very 
you know, outlandishly modern and, you know, um, no, no one had ever thought of having such a thing. Um, they, while I was there in the early days, they acquired a fridge. Actually, John Mortimer bought the RSL a fridge because he said he couldn't stand drinking uh, warm white wine at our AGMs and things. But that was all, all that kind of thing. So I was, yeah, everything from, you know, going to buy the fridge in Edgware Road to um, taking Muriel Spark out to dinner. It was, it was, yeah, very varied. And what does your role there now involve and, and how much of your time is taken up with RSL activities? Well, my role there now uh, really is just um, they bring out once a year something called the Royal Society of Literature Review, which is a, a basically their magazine, um, and I edit that. And um, so for we've just sent it to the printer for this year, but for sort of two months before that... Uh, it's uh, very, very hard work. Um, sort of, it, it covers, there's a magazine that covers all that the RSL's been doing and the prizes that have been awarded and, uh, you know, the new presidents having been elected and that kind of thing, but also <clears throat> features and notes about all the new fellows. And it's, a, it's quite a kind of hefty piece of work, but, um, but fun. Yeah. Could we track back now to your childhood was it a particularly bookish childhood I read somewhere that you loved the Ladybird People at Work series when you were young yeah I did I, I loved all the Ladybird books actually very much um yes it it was a bookish childhood my um parents uh had met at Oxford um, my mum read history like as I did uh later but my dad read English and his tutor was C.S. Lewis um at Magdalen um and uh so he we were read to a huge amount as small children there are there are five of us um children um and uh i went to a school that was a bit sort of dim academically but um but literature was something they did mind but you know they they read to us while we i'm not joking while we darned our socks on a wednesday evening that kind of thing so um Yes, I think it, yeah, I think books have always been a big thing. So then following up from that, why did you choose to study history over, say, English at university? I mean, it was a toss up between the two. It could have been, it could have gone either way. Um, I think that, well, what happened was that my, uh, as I said, my school was not very academic and the history teaching at A-level was particularly weak. And so my mum, who was very sort of beady about these things, um, decided I should just stop having history lessons at school. And she uh, found a tutor at Eton who would take me on. He was actually the head of history at Eton, who took me on for a year by myself. Um, and his teaching was so inspirationally good that I really, uh, by the end of that year, I wanted to do history. Um, and then I had another term at Eton uh, with Boris, <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, the, the, by then I decided to do history. Yeah, uh, was he a particularly good classmate or <laughs> or not? He wasn't. Well, he was a classicist, so he wasn't in the same uh, actual classes as me. Um, but he was already this kind of enormous figure. Everybody knew, somehow, everybody knew about Boris. Everybody knew he was. It was completely obvious he was going to, you know, that was going to 
grow and you know everybody in the country would know he was at some point so it's very odd very odd yeah and then after university is it right that you went to work in the city initially why why did you uh, end up going in that direction uh so i mean that was a terrible mistake but um i uh i my parents it was absolutely clear that i had to get some sort of job that would keep me i mean my parents weren't living in London, so I couldn't just sort of hang around at home and wait to get a job in publishing or something. Uh, I, had to, I had to get a job lined up. I was rather fed up with having no money. Um, and so I went in on the uh, milk round. And in those days, I don't know, maybe it's the same still, I'm not sure. But in those days, it was very, very easy um, to get a job in the city. Uh, you went, they, the bankers came pouring down to Oxford they took over bedrooms in the Randolph Hotel you sat in these interviews on sort of twin beds with your knees knocking against a banker's knees and they had these interviews and all they asked me about was the fact that I'd been at Eton that was the question that I just kept answering this question they never asked me about you know whether I thought that uh, the share price of tarmac was going up or down you know it was nothing like that at all so um so I, you know, I got this job without much problem. But as soon as I arrived uh, to start work, yeah, it was clear to me it wasn't, I simply couldn't possibly uh, carry on there very long. And so how did you make your first steps in journalism? I, I read an interview where you described a sort of disastrous typing course in, in on the Strand. Oh, yes. Awful. God. So after the city, the city came to a sort of disastrous end because... I was engaged to somebody who was in the same firm and then I pulled out um, of the engagement at slightly the last minute, so I had to leave the job. Um, I lost my flat, which I bought with a sort of 0% uh, mortgage rate. Um, so, you know, so I didn't, I didn't have a boyfriend, I didn't have a job, I didn't have any money. Um, and I was pretty kind of at a pretty low ebb. So I went to do a typing course in Charing Cross Road uh, and it was, yeah, it was quite miserable and I had no idea where it was going to lead. But then um, when I was a few weeks into it, a friend rang and said she was working on Harper's and Queen, which doesn't really exist anymore. I don't think it was now called Harper's Bazaar. Um, and they were looking for a sub-editor and they weren't advertising the job at all. Um, I mean, these days, you know, hundreds of people would be trying for a job like that. But... Uh, I think only three of us were interviewed and so I got that job and that was the beginning and we had a um, we used to have a restaurant column um, the subs and we, we would go out and review restaurants so it was possible to get a tiny 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 toe in the door of writing and that went quite well and then I started to write features for them and then there was this, I don't know if it still exists, you may know, there was this wonderful prize called the Catherine Packenham Award for uh, a woman journalist. Um, and a woman journalist under 25, I think. And um, I was twice runner-up for that. And that got me, that got me work, because I was then able to say to people, I've been twice runner-up, could I do this or that? Um, and... You know, I was sort of asking all my friends to try and have thoughts about people I might interview or pieces I might write. And um, it just started 
things started moving. And so, some I had did some very dull writing just to sort of keep the money coming in. Um, but some of it was really thr- thrilling and even life changing. And I mean, when I say that, I mean, <clears throat> I'm looking back at uh, my going, um, being sent up to Orkney to interview George Mackay Brown because. Um, that that was yeah that that was a thing that changed my life um and that was i was still i don't know i was about 25 or something i think um and uh yeah there was a wonder there used to be a wonderful um saturday review uh on the times and they ran big features you could write 5000 words um and they they sent me first to interview Kathleen Rain the poet and then George Mackay Brown. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to come back to George Mackay Brown in, in more detail later on, but could you explain a bit about what the, the kind of culture and the environment of magazines and newspapers when you were starting out, in, this was in the 80s, I think, compared to today? How, how, were, how were things different to today? I mean, Harper's and Queen, I've no idea what it would be like these days on a glossy magazine, because I haven't worked on one for years and years. In those days, on Harper's and Queen, it was... I was very grateful to have that job, very grateful for some of the people I worked with, but it wasn't um, it wasn't really my kind of place at all. So it was, uh, you know, it was very glossy, very much to do with fashion and parties and the whole. I remember the whole atmosphere in the office used to always feel to me like a sort of a bit like a cocktail party going at kind of not not quite full speed um and so um yeah i mean i i i i was lucky to be there but i was lucky to move on as well um newspapers i mean i think the funny thing is that uh way back in those days this is this is way before email so there was no way of uh emailing an editor saying you know would you think of allowing me to do this or that? You had to literally get your cuttings out, photocopy them, put them into parcels, write a covering letter on, in my case, a manual typewriter for quite a long time. Um, And uh, weirdly, I think that it was easier to get work like that than it is now, because I think that um, people get editors get emails just sort of flooding their inboxes and emails from totally unknown writers are quite unlikely unless the editor is particularly kind I think that it's very easy for those emails just to get lost so I think I think strangely and I think it was I think it was easier um for me then than it would be now when you moved on from Harper's and Queen were you freelancing or did you have other kind of staff roles at other publications oh well when I moved on from um, Harpers and Queen I was at the Royal Society of Literature so and that was always part-time so um so I did two days a week there and then I was freelancing three days a week and I have to say I think that uh is I would say to anyone trying to get into journalism if you can possibly get um a part-time job uh, that you can rely on the income from and then freelance the rest of the time that's you know that's ideal because to freelance a hundred percent i think is is really difficult in fact well i've never managed to do it i don't think i would be able to do it 
So we always, um, on the podcast, we always ask about money and how it has interfaced with, with people's writing lives. So at that time in, in say, the 90s, the, the amount that publications paid for freelance pieces, and I know taking inflation into account and so forth, how did it compare to, to how rates are now? Was there more money around? Yeah, there was more money around. I mean, honestly, what I was, I remember being paid by various publications in those days was not very much less than what you would be paid now. And and that's 25 years ago. So uh, I think it's, yeah, I think the money is much harder now, much harder. Yeah. Could we now talk about the assignment that you mentioned for the Times in 1992 that led to your first book? Um, you mentioned specifically a disastrous first interview. Um, could you uh, tell listeners a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, sure. So um, I had begun to read uh, George Mackay Brown's poetry actually in the in that strange closed library of the Royal Society of Literature. Um, I took it down off the shelf and I was just bowled over by his poetry. Absolutely uh, marvellous kind of images like, you know, uh, lovers lying under the buttered bannock of the moon. And, I, you know, it was just, I, I thought it was fantastic. So... Um, and I heard he had a novel coming out and I asked the woman, whose name I can't remember at the Times, whether I could go and um, interview him. Uh, and uh, so she said yes, and off I went. And I arrived in Orkney, it was the end of May, so it was very, very beautiful weather. You know, Orkney hardly gets dark at that time of year and the light is just kind of spilling out over the islands. Um, and I couldn't wait to meet George Mackay Brown, but um, when I turned up at his council flat the next day, uh, he I realised he was paralytically shy and um, all the questions I'd been prepared to ask him, he answered in sort of monosyllables or not, not at all. And then he leaned back in, he was sitting in a rocking chair and leaned his head on his hands and just began to hum. And I thought, oh my God, you know, this is just, this is really disastrous. Um, so, but it happened that I met him the following day <clears throat> at mass in the Catholic chapel outside Orkney. And um, he asked, it was a tiny congregation, about five of us, and he asked us all to go back for tea. Um, and then he was sort of transformed. He was m relaxed and very witty, very um, brilliant mimic, very sweet host. And we had this jolly time. And then I said, I think, you know, I, I it's time for me to go. And he said, oh, can I just show you something? And I said, uh, sure, what's, you know, and he got um, a facsimile. He'd been sent um, by a friend in Edinburgh of a letter that Mary, Queen of Scots, had written to her grandfather the day before... Uh, her grandfather, her cousin, the King of France, the night before she died. And it was all in sort of medieval French. And I said to him, I'm afraid I yeah, can't uh, understand this. And he said, no, what I want you to take on board is the firmness of her script in the face of death. And um, I just felt that was kind of like... He was, you know, it was an invitation to friendship and um, and indeed he became a great, great friend for the next four years until he died in 96. So I, I've been a couple of times 
to Orkney and, and likewise have found it a really beguiling place. I've got a friend who, who lives in Stromness, but I'm conscious that some of our readers may not, or sorry, listeners may not know that much about, about Orkney and, and, and sort of where it fits into Scottish culture and stuff. Could you give a bit of an explainer about just what kind of place it is and where George Mackay Brown kind of fitted into its, its tradition and its culture? Of course, yes. Uh, that's really, really nice that you've been there. Um, so uh, what I sometimes say to people if I'm trying to explain uh, where Orkney is, is that if you drive north uh, and you get as far as Edinburgh, you're only halfway. So it's that much further north to get um, from, you know, from Edinburgh up to Orkney. Um, and the landscape is... So if you, if you were doing it by car, when you get to the north of Scotland, to sort of Strathy, um, it's very craggy and wild uh, and slightly forbidding. But you cross that little bit of water to Orkney and it's a beautifully kind of um, fertile, green uh, set of 70 islands. Um, and I think the best way to describe the shape of them is that they're, they're not mountainous except for one of them called Hoy. Um, but nor are they flat, and they are what the poet Edwin Muir used to describe as fluent, and I think that's by far, that's by far the best way to just describe the sort of shape of the landscape. So there are very few trees because there's so much wind, um, but almost everywhere you look, uh, you can see the sea, and you can see you right over to the horizon and you can see the sort of curve of the horizon. So it's clear, you, you can see that you're on a globe. Um, and then everywhere you go, there's history going way back to kind of prehistoric history, um, right through Viking history. There's the most amazing cathedral uh, in Kirkwall, the capital, built by the Durham Masons in the uh, 12th century. Um, and uh, then right up to the, you know, remains from the First World War and the Second World War, because Orkney is, for anyone who doesn't know, Orkney, Orkney is where Scapa Flow is. So, so that's where the great kind of um, naval uh, manoeuvres of the First and Second World War happened. So you feel this, this huge um, arc of history uh, and... It always gives me the feeling that um, life is very short because we're, you know, tight, very insignificant in this enormous kind of sweep of time. Very short, but um, very precious. And I, that's quite a difficult thing to feel in London. I think it's much easier up there. And so how did your relationship with uh, Brown develop over the ensuing years? And at what point did the idea of a biography uh, emerge. So I came back to London having done that first interview and I was so bowled over by the place, uh, the poetry and the man that I just kept my curtains closed for the whole of the first morning back. I couldn't bear to look out of the window. I just wanted to make sure that uh, everything kind of stayed in my head. Um, and I didn't know how how it would develop and then a couple of days after that a letter arrived from George Mackay Brown um, in which amongst other bits of news and stuff he said uh, I hope you will come back often I feel you belong here in Orkney and I was really um, I was really amazed by that 
I felt I belonged in Orkney from the moment I arrived there, but that he should have felt it seemed amazing to me. Um, so I did go back uh, as much as I possibly could, and it became almost like a second home, and I found um, things to write about, so things things to write freelance articles about, like, you know, I interviewed Peter Maxwell Davis on his 60th birthday, and... I went to write about a little school on one of the tiny islands where there are only two pupils and um, and I did more writing about George Mackay Brown. So I was constantly going back there with a sort of, with a purpose and sort of just about managing to kind of pay my way to be there. And then um, in the summer of 1995, uh, George's editor, who's called Hugo Brunner, um, said to me, would you be, in, what would you ever think about writing his life and um i said i would you know i i can't think of anything i'd rather do but i just wouldn't ever dare ask him um <clears throat> so hugo brunner talked to george said to me you know he's happy for you to do it so i went um to george's house that afternoon i never ever dared say to him um you know hugo says you're happy for me to do this. We never t- actually said, talked about the book, but we j- because he he was, you know, he was very, very shy and I was quite shy, but he said, shall we go for a walk? We went for a little walk. We sat on a bench in Stromness, um, looking out over the sea and he just started talking about his childhood and he talked and talked and talked for, I don't know, over an hour. And um, <clears throat> at the end of that conversation, I... Um, I thought, you know, he that he wants, yeah. This he's giving me his blessing to do it, yeah. And that was a year before he died. Is that right? He died. Died in ninety six. Okay. And so, so how did the the process of of writing the book span these these two sides of when he was still alive and and then when after he died? Did it did it move to become an archival thing? It was always agreed that I wouldn't write anything until after he died. So, um, and it was we had arranged that in the month of May 1996 I was going to spend a month in Orkney um, and I was going to see him every evening and we would talk about his life so that was that was the plan there was no reason to think he was going to die um, and then in April he died very suddenly uh, so I hadn't really done much work and uh, you know he, he I wasn't going to be able to talk to him about it um, so I was a bit sort of, I did wonder, I mean, part of me thought, you know, somebody really, really needs to tell his story. Uh, and part of me thought, I just don't see how this is going to be done because, um, you know, he hadn't, he didn't travel. He didn't ever sign one of his book. He didn't do a book signing. He didn't do a public reading. Um, you know, there, there was on the face of it, there was, there was very, very little to, say um but then so i went up to edinburgh in that month of may when i would have been in orkney and um began to look through his manuscripts in the edinburgh university library and then his um the the librarian came over one day to my desk and he said i think you know i have something you might be interested in and he showed me a box and it had a rather cryptic message on the outside in George's handwriting saying something like, not to be read for the time being. And um, anyway, the librarian agreed to open it and out tumbled about 250 letters from George Mackay Brown to 
his great muse, Stella Cartwright. And those letters are so extraordinary that I thought even if, um, even if I could only tell that part of his story, it, it has to be done. So that, that was what sort of kicked it off. How much time did you spend in archives in total while you were working on the book? I counted at least 13 different libraries or institutions in your acknowledgements. <laughs> yes, I spent a lot of... Uh, I don't... I mean, I, it's difficult because as soon as... Um, I, I mean, I got married almost immediately after George died and then I had um, children and I was also working at the RSL. So the book was a very sort of stop-start thing and it took a long long time so um yes i spent uh i spent a lot of time a lot of time in archives but i i i really loved it i mean it's such a lovely um thing to do i mean the stella cartwright letters obviously were were particularly special and then i discovered all her letters back to george and it was just the most beautiful uh poignant sad um kind of relationship that that was revealed through them. Um, but then even things like the publisher's archives, which were in Reading University Library. So it's a sort of grotty little low ceilinged room. But um, just to read through those boxes of letters and see how uh, George Mackay Brown was sort of introduced by Edwin Muir to the Hogarth Press, uh, which later became Chateau and how one particular editor called Nora Smallwood brought him on, um, you know, very, very slowly over the years, getting him to do more and more and persuading him to write a memoir and this kind of thing. It was, it was absolutely, um, to, to me, it, it was absolutely fascinating. You get dive into one of those archive boxes and you're back, you know, 30 years or something and more than that, actually, and um, just following people almost sort of day by day through their lives is is wonderful. Is it right that he had, I think as you alluded to just now, he'd published a, a memoir, an autobiography just before he died. And then, and then there was also a literary biography that came out before yours. Is that right? How did you kind of use those as material or where did they those other works fit with your project? So he, uh, he wrote, a, um, uh, what happened was that when Stella Cartwright, uh, whom he whom he loved so much, died uh, in very sad circumstances. She was an alcoholic. In um, 1985, he, for the first time in his life, uh, suffered from writer's block. He could not write anything. And he also suffered terribly from depression, George. So he was in a bad, bad way. And in order to lift himself out of that, he began writing um, his autobiography for The Islands I Sing, um, and it's a sort of uh, slightly strange book because he, it's not very long, he dwells on the things that he wants to dwell on. He writes very beautifully in the middle of it about Stella. Uh, he writes a lot about Orkney, he writes a lot about his faith, but it's not really conventional, doesn't really exactly take you through his life. Anyway, he gave me the manuscript of that while he was still alive, um, and it wasn't published, I think, for a couple of years after he died. So... Um, so that was fine. That I had, there was no problem. I, I wasn't, you know, there was another book to be written. I mean, it wasn't, um, it wasn't that there was no more to be said. So that was, that was fine. And the literary biography was written by some friends of his in Orkney. Um, and it's just, 
it's just a totally, totally different thing from my book. It's a, it's a piece of uh, sort of serious lit crit, which is not, uh, I would never be able to write, and it's not what I, it's not what I did write. So, so there was room for all three books. Yeah. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the author and journalist Maggie Ferguson. You're about to hear the next instalment of our new segment. In this segment, you'll hear previous guests of the show answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them, so hopefully they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests we've had on. So, without further ado, here's the novelist Val McDermott with the most important trait a writer should have. And I think the one trait that I think any successful writer needs to possess is patience. Sometimes it takes a very long time to figure out how to tell a story. I always think that the point where you're ready to write a novel is when you understand what the structure of the story is that you're trying to tell. And that doesn't always come in a hurry. Sometimes you have a great idea for a story and things fall into place very quickly. But other times you've got the story and you can't figure out how to tell it. I think my record between actually knowing what the story was and finding the structure for it was 12 years. I... I, had a brilliant idea for a thriller and many of the elements fell into place but there was one narrative element I couldn't figure out how to fit into the story and I wrote the first 10-15,000 words of that book five times and tore it up every time because I just couldn't figure out the structure and when the answer came it didn't come from me being brilliant and, and figuring out some spectacular way of doing it it came about because Something in the outside world changed. Uh, I, I struggled with the book because there was a character whose backstory she had carefully obliterated over the years, but I had to find a reason why she would open up about that again. And what gave me the opportunity, what made sense of all of that, was when busy memoirs started to become so popular. Uh, and I suddenly realised that she's the kind of person who would have the misery memoir. Uh, and that opened that up for me. It opened up that possibility of why she would start talking about her past again. And that suddenly was like the light bulb going on in my head. I knew how to write the novel. That was Val McDermott. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Maggie Ferguson. We tend to get into the nuts and bolts of writing on this podcast. Um, and I think I read that your research was supported by grants in part. Um, where did those grants come from and how did you go about applying for them and, and all of that stuff? I think I got two grants. Uh, one was from the Society of Authors, um, where I think it's called the Catherine Blundell Trust. And I was put in touch with that by Michael Holroyd, who by that time was chair of the Royal Society of Literature. So I was lucky. I mean, I, otherwise I really might not have known about it. But the, the Society of Authors does give amazing grants for writers. If anyone hears this and is looking for a grant, it's definitely worth looking up. Um, and then I got one from my old college, Somerville, um, 
I can't, I can't for the life of me remember how much they were worth, but, um, but the Somerville one I put towards, uh, I literally bought sort of parcels of childcare so that when the children were tiny, I could just have three hours here and there um, to write. I think those were the only two, and I had a sort of tiny, tiny advance. What Michael Holroyd would call more more a retreat than a re- an advance, but it was, yeah, minute. And what was the the connection between doing the Mackay Brown biography and then the later one on Michael Morpurgo? How did those two projects kind of lean to one another? Well, there's not really much of a connection, except that um, Michael Morpurgo read the George Mackay Brown book and um, then got in touch out of the blue and said, you know, would you like to write something about me? And um, I was a little bit wary. Uh, you know, such a very different subject. He's an incredibly nice man, Michael Morpogo. You know, very, very nice. I'm very fond of him. But it was it was a completely different sort of story. And also, it is very different to write about somebody who's still alive. And I, I think really, I would suggest that anyone who's thinking about writing about somebody who's still alive kind of thinks again because um of course you have the advantage that your subject is there to answer questions and tell you everything that's happened but um with the best will in the world if people are still alive they really don't want you to tell a kind of warts and all story you you just can't and so you end up uh writing something a bit bland i that's what i felt was that the fact that Michael Morpurgo was so alive, was that part of the reason that the format of the book is slightly more unusual with the kind of interstitial stories? With the best will in the world, if people are still alive, they really don't want you to tell a kind of warts and all story. You you just can't. And so you end up uh, writing something a bit bland. I, that's what I felt. Yeah. Was that... The fact that Michael Morpurgo was so alive, was that part of the reason that the format of the book is slightly more unusual? Yes. Kind of well, also, yes, stories? yes, I think, well, the idea was that um, it might be possible to create a book that was appealing both to children and to adults. So that if I wrote the biographical chapters, which would, you know, the adults might read, the children might read the stories in between. But I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that really happened. Without diverging any confidences, are you able to say what any of the kind of points of tension with your living subject were with that book? With, with Michael, I mean, I think he, he, he wouldn't mind me, I don't think he would mind me saying that he, uh, he had, um, at that time, and I think it's now mercifully much better, but he, he, there, were, there were tensions between him and his own children. And um, there was no way uh, Michael or even more his wife Claire was going to let me write about that um, and and certainly the children weren't going to understandably, completely understandably um, so uh, yeah that was, I mean that was really that was really it Could we move on to talk about your work at Intelligent Life where you became literary editor, um, when did you start working there um, and what was your sort of day to day routine like given that it's a, or was a quarterly publication? Yes. Um, do you know the awful thing is I have I really don't know what year I started working there, but maybe was it maybe two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven, twelve, that kind of thing. Um, and it was just because uh, the editor Tim Delisle um, was 
a friend. Um, we were at Oxford together, although he's slightly older than me. And um, I somehow we sort of chatted about books and things, and he he just took it into his head that it... I mean, I did, there wasn't a literary editor before before I came, I don't think, and um, he, he wanted to do a bit more with books, and uh, he thought it would be... Um, good and I think it was good actually I, I hope other people thought so too to have rather than have um, somebody who just commissioned reviews to have somebody who actually wrote brief reviews um, of it started off being eight books per issue and then it went down to six and it was just called six good books um, so it was a lot of reading uh, but that was you know that's a pretty nice job um i came into the office maybe a couple of days a week uh and then um and it was a it was a lovely um really nice staff really lovely people to be working with uh and the fantastic thing one of the fantastic things was that um intelligent life had it was so sort of lavishly funded that it was possible to get writers really grand writers to write um, pieces that otherwise they simply wouldn't have done. So I began commissioning uh, features as well as doing the books and some, I mean, there's some pieces I just loved working on, like um, a piece about uh, the gosh, Patrick McGrath, the novelist who grew up at in Broadmoor, his father was the chief medical superintendent of Broadmoor, so he grew up with all these sort of criminal lunatics, you know, as his best friends, pushing his swing and making his sandpit. And I mean, I just, I just found that absolutely, completely fascinating. And um, then I started commissioning this series called Authors on Museums, where um, we invited authors and they've really grabbed because we were able to pay them a pound a word I think to do this and to fly them plus a partner to whatever museum they wanted anywhere in the world and to stay there for a couple of nights I mean it was just extraordinary I remember when I sent an invitation to Alice Oswald the poet to do this she got back and said could I just could I just hammer this out are you really suggesting that you're going to send me all this way and you're going to you're really get you're going to pay me a pound a word because I've just read it out to my children and they think it's a joke so um so we did uh that and god there were some wonderful fantastic um pieces I think I mean the ones that I remember most clearly and fondly are Roddy Doyle's wonderful piece on the Tenement Museum in um, New York and uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce on the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. Those two are just, yeah, amazing bits of writing. Very, very thrilling to be able to work on them. I was looking um, in, in the version of those that became a book and seeing um, Tim Delisle's comments about how, you know, how he was inspired for this by how different museums were visiting with his, his child. But I was particularly struck in, in terms of the work that you mentioned. I know this is from a slightly later iteration of the publication, but the piece about loneliness that you wrote for 1843, which I found very moving. What was the, the kind of inspiration for doing that? And, and tell us a bit about the process of reporting and writing that story. Um, I, I think, I'm hoping I'm getting this right, but I think that before writing about loneliness, I wrote a piece uh, about dying 
And, um, and the piece about dying was commissioned by, Tim said in the office one day, I think we should do a piece about dying. There was suddenly something in the kind of zeitgeist. Everybody was writing about dying. And since then, have been masses of books about death and dying. And I said, um, I just jumped at it. I just said, please, please, can I do that? Uh, and he said, okay, you do it. And I did, I found it absolutely fascinating. And I got, I mean, I love, um, it's almost better than writing a book, which is always long drawn out and rather stressful to have a piece of long-form journalism um, that you can just bury yourself in for a month or something and then have this long piece and then and then leave it behind, I think is great. But um, the piece about dying seemed to hit a chord, I don't know, it seemed to go down well. And then I think that it was Emma Duncan who suggested this piece on uh, that we must do something about loneliness. And because I was in a sort of, uh, you know... It, in everybody's good books after the piece on dying I uh, was then able to say please can I do the piece on loneliness and I was uh, and I was given it so yeah fascinating very fascinating how long did it take to report write and then I guess edit as well I don't remember loneliness being too difficult I would think it might have been all in all stretched over a couple of months the one that really really um uh I found uh, difficult and uh, in the end they brought in more help with was a piece about gifted children for some reason I just could not get uh, quite what they were kind of asking me to do so um, that was much more difficult but I think that le- the dying piece and the loneliness piece were very smooth. Why um, Why was the gifted children piece more more complicated? As, as Ray just said we love to talk about the kind of you know how an edit process works and, and how things get developed. What, what was trickier with that process? I just I just um, I just found it very difficult to get a handle on um, you know first of all you have to work out exactly what it means to be a gifted child and of course there are you know there are masses of parents who think they've got gifted children and you know who probably haven't um, then I sort of tracked down various gifted children who'd done incredibly well on I can't remember what that programme was on television about the child genius or something um, uh, but then it was thought that that wasn't exactly what was wanted, I don't know, it just seemed it, it just I, I seemed to, it seemed to go sort of backwards and then they wanted me to speak to a neuroscientist who specialised in gifts and I spoke to one but it didn't seem to be quite what was wanted and blah, blah, blah. anyway um so, so Simon Willis then came in and did some research, and it's kind of really basically the pieces by both of us, because I it's it wasn't entirely my piece, but I sometimes, if I click on it in my documents, the gifted children thing, I mean, it's got almost more files in it than all my research over 10 years on George Mackay Brown. It's just incredible amount of work and slightly frustrating, but... Yeah. Um, well, George Mackay Brown also pops up in another piece you sent us about uh, prison reading groups. Where did the idea for, for that one come from? The prison reading groups piece. Um, I, uh, I was kind of looking around for um, something I might do when my children were sort of older and they didn't, you know, I wasn't so much kind of needed at the school gates and that kind of thing. I wanted to do something... Um, I wasn't sure what, some kind of voluntary work. Uh, and I, somebody put me in touch with prison reading groups and I put my name down 
uh, as a volunteer and then I didn't hear anything for a couple of years and then I got an email saying are you still interested uh, there's a group in Wandsworth prison um, if you'd like to if you'd like to take it on and so I said yeah and rather amazingly uh, there's no training uh, there's no security checks I mean it's, you know this is this is high security prison and in the wing called the vulnerable prisoners unit so it's very high security wing but you just kind of you just go in there you know they don't they don't tell you how to you know what you should do if you get alarmed or anything anyway I'm glad to say that's never happened never happened so um I started taking this group we um we meet once a month uh we are each given a copy of a book which the group themselves choose um we read it and we get together for an hour or so and uh just chat about the book and then maybe read a bit of poetry or a short story at the end uh and it is i mean i was there this week it is it is um amazing to me every time how these prisoners who are i mean one of the guys in our group this week who'd been on remand has just been sentenced to 20 years but with with the right book and the kind of right guidance these men are lifted out of their gloom they really are for an hour and um they're fantastic it's it's great uh, it's a great great scheme that was set up by somebody called Sarah Turvey about 20 years ago so I, I feel very very lucky to be part of that so we're coming towards the end of our time now, but could you tell us um, a bit about your work at the tablet now uh, as as literary editor and how that works and, the, and what is working at a, a faith-based publication like compared to your experiences elsewhere? Well, I love my, I love my job at the tablet. So it's, it couldn't be more different from Intelligent Life uh, where we were able to pay people a pound a word um, to do authors on museums pieces. The tablet pays, I can't remember, sort of 2p a word or something. So it's a... It's a very different challenge getting, trying to get people to to write for me. But there are, there are actually plenty of people who who, who are prepared to, do so. And I'm, the literary editor. I'm I'm commissioning book reviews. Um, but also, as at Intelligent Life, I'm also, uh, you know, interviewing people and working on features and stuff. And, on the whole, those are they have some. They nod towards the kind of. Uh, religious whilst also being interesting to everybody so I'm just thinking of people I've interviewed this year so uh, Gwen Adshead um, I can't remember the name of her book that came out in the autumn she's the one who's a psychiatrist and psychotherapist at Broadmoor all her life and it's a book about um, uh, dealing <clears throat> with these men who've done these terrible things and it's a, it's a book exploring whether there is such a thing as evil or not well that that's very fascinating to me, but I think it's not just because I'm a Catholic. That's that is a that is a fascinating question. Um, Frank Cottrell Boyce, I interviewed for the Christmas issue, so he's a very very devout Catholic, and he talked a lot about his faith. But he also uh, does amazing work in schools, in Liverpool prisons, uh, with the homeless. His wife does incredible work with refugee women, so that. Uh, that to me was very interesting. So that's sort of half religious and half, you know, half general readership. <clears throat> and those are the kinds of things that, that interest me. 
how many pieces a week do you sort of oversee and, and shepherd through to publication? In the, on the tablet, um, there are uh, five reviews a week. Um, so it's, t- it's tiny, you know, three pages of reviews a week. Uh, but it's only, it's not a full-time job. It's two days a week. Yeah. And kind of alluding to that portfolio way that you've, you've managed your career, how does it, your sort of mix of different uh, roles and jobs work at the moment? And then over, you know, the, the three decades or so you've been doing this, how has it all fitted together financially? Has it, you, you alluded earlier to the, it was sort of early import when you were starting out to have this, you know, couple of regular days a week and then other stuff around that. How has, how has that jigsaw kind of developed and varied over the years? I mean, I've never had, I've never made loads of money, but I've never been, I've never been desperately worried about money either. Um, it's funny, we were talking at lunch about how, you know, some of our friends, the, certainly the people I knew in the city, you know, made absolutely squillions of pounds and now, and you would think that it was just impossible to have a sort of decent life on, on a journalist's uh, salary. I mean, what, what, you earn 30, 40 50 maximum that kind of thing um uh but actually actually you know you do so it's it's not um, um we were very lucky that we were uh living in west london we were surrounded by the most outstanding catholic state schools so our children went through those so there's no question of having to raise school fees um uh but yeah i mean the you know it it's it's fine. I can't think of anything. I, you know, I suppose some people really, really want to have a second house and I can't think of anything I would less like to have than a second house. I'd know I would just spend my time on the motorway worrying that I'd left, you know, the brie in the fridge in the other house and that kind of thing. I just couldn't bear it. So I, I'm, I'm very happy not to be very rich. And as a final question for me, is there anything that you, any kind of passion projects that you would like to write if you had the opportunity to? You know, they, they, I can't say there is at the moment, but they, they come up every time I do a piece. Like the most recent one is uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce, as I said, but, and before that I interviewed the Canet Mason family. You know, there's amazing seven musicians. Uh, and every single time I get one of those pieces, I think, God, this is the best piece I could ever, I don't want, there's nothing I would rather write than uh, this, and there's never going to be such a good one again. And you know, the thing is, there just are. So I just know there will be things coming up in the new year that I get kind of, not just interested in, I get kind of borderline obsessed by, and then, um, you know, bury myself in them for a couple of weeks and then come out the other side. So yeah, not at the moment, but I, there, there will be. Brilliant, Maggie. Well, look, thank you for being a fascinating guest on Always Take Notes and um, and telling us all about your various projects and also for that wonderful um, little portrait of Orkney that you gave. Oh, I'm so... Where did you go in Orkney? Uh, so I have a... Actually, a friend of mine from university lives in Stromness, so I've been up to see her. And then another friend of mine, his family have like a tiny place um, up in the sort of... Nor- on mainland, but... Um, kind of on the north the north coast of there so i've been i've been once in the middle of winter and then once once in the height of summer and and just found yeah the light remarkable and wonderful i do remember getting the ferry from aberdeen in like a force nine gale and that was that was quite grim but no it's it's a wonderful place but yeah wishing wishing you all the best and, and thanks for being a super guest on the podcast thank you very much indeed
That was the Always Take Notes interview with Maggie Ferguson. She's not on Twitter, but you can follow her work at 1843 Magazine, at The Spectator and The Tablet, and her biography of George Mackay Brown is published by John Murray. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Maggie? Well, two things stood out to me. Uh, Firstly, the fortuitous nature of her first assignment on Mackay Brown that led to her book. I think all of us who have interviewed people have had those moments where the conversation isn't exactly going well and you're panicking about how on earth you're going to spin a piece out of it. Yet she managed not only to do that, but to cultivate a lasting and and meaningful relationship with her subject, which was heartening to hear. Um, And I guess secondly, and I think this is another thing that readers and particularly journalists will empathise with, um, I appreciated Maggie's honesty about pieces that hadn't really gone to plan she acknowledged the fact that sometimes um you don't know how to fix things and that there's not really any shame of that sometimes you're too close to things you're too close to the detail and you and you can't really pull back and see the bigger picture how about you i was fascinated with the whole uh orkney thing because i've been there a few times and i find it find it a magical time and and mackie brown certainly has this kind of legendary reputation up there so i i loved hearing about all of that i was also really sure to hear about how the Royal Society of Literature had had changed and evolved um, yes. from this this kind of slightly fusty and old fashioned organisation, which only had one typewriter, right? Didn't mm. you say that? Uh, and but a great library, but a, but a great library. <laughs> um, to how that that has kind of moved, and I think that speaks to a lot of stuff that's been going on in in the British literary world. So, all in all, a um, a really great episode. Anyway, what have what have you been up to, Rachel? Otherwise, I've been plodding along with my usual journalism um but actually i have my graduation from the nfts this week so that's the main thing that's on my agenda um i'll be meeting lots of my course mates for the first time in person given it was all done in lockdown um how about you you've been juggling lots of pieces yeah i've just been been grinding away really um do working this week on a on a uh the text of a big piece for 1843 and refining another one and then i just closed um a big piece for the london review of books which should be out by the time this this goes out which is exciting because i haven't read for them before so yeah busy busy as ever really uh this has been always take notes hosted by me simon akam and me rachel lloyd our producer and social media editor is artemis irvin our score is by jess danheiser and our graphic design is by james edgar if you'd like to follow us on social media you can find us on facebook and instagram at always take notes on twitter at take notes always if you'd like to support us via our crowdfunding page on patreon we're on there and always take notes and if you'd like to leave a review on itunes or get in touch with us via our website please do many thanks goodbye